This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of season two of the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I welcome Arc member Lori Kelly to the show to share her incredible story of perseverance, strength, and humanity as she transformed from growing up in a racist cult to becoming an anti-racist activist. And she explains why it is possible and imperative for any and all of us to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and change the world. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world. And our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform practice, and spread anti-racism. Now, this begins with our three-step process for personal transformation to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third step is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. Now, this process is designed so that any one person can make a difference by committing to anti-racism and anti-hate and then influencing others to transform and start a mini movement, a mini movement that grows and combines with other mini movements by other individuals to eventually become a large enough movement to change the world. You see, any single one of us can make this happen. You influence five or 10 people in your personal sphere of influence, your group. Influence that five or 10 in your group to do the same and influence another five or 10 in their group. And so on and so on. You can go from one single person to starting a mini movement of over 100 to a thousand people driving and spreading anti-racism and anti-hate. Now, look, I talk about our process of transformation and spreading anti-racism every episode, and I believe it wholeheartedly and I've done it. But I'm a realist. So I even know that for many of us, this is much easier said than done. Even for those of us who want to make this transformation badly and who wholeheartedly commit to transforming ourselves and others to spread anti-racism and anti-hate with all the crazy things that are happening in our world today, it can sometimes feel like an unwinnable fight at times. In the United States alone, there have been over 400 mass shootings already this year. It's quite possible we could have over a thousand before this year is done. No other developed country in the world has this problem. There's nowhere literally in the United States that you can consider yourself safe. Not churches, not malls, not concerts or movies, not grocery stores, as we saw recently and tragically in Buffalo. And our poor children, not even in schools, as we've seen repeatedly over the last 20 years with one of the most recent and one of the worst and most heart-wrenching in Uvalde. And not even parades. Since our last episode, seven people were killed and 46 were injured during a July 4th parade in Highland Park. Our kids can't look forward to going to school or even going to the parade without worrying 
about mass shooters. And once again, we continue to see unarmed black men be shot and killed by police at alarming rates. Even when the increased visibility of news coverage, of social media, even police body cameras. In Akron, Ohio, just recently, a 25-year-old man named Jalen Walker was shot 60 times by eight officers as he fled from them. Yes, he was running away from them, unarmed at the time. And it was all caught on their body cameras. And let's not forget that there is still a war in Ukraine instigated by a Russian dictator that continues to rage on, even if it's not front page news anymore. And millions and millions of people are either dead or have been displaced from their homes. Our climate continues to warm at alarming rates due to human activity and is nearing irreversible levels, while the U.S. Supreme Court just ruled to reduce the authority and ability of the EPA to enforce environmental regulations. This is all while glaciers, millions of years old, and not expected to melt for thousands of years to come, are melting right now and breaking off in the ocean, raising sea levels and warming the climate. And speaking of the Supreme Court of the United States, last month they reversed Roe versus Wade, making it illegal in many states for women to make choices about their own bodies. This is the first time in modern history that the Supreme Court has voted to take away personal rights in this country. This is not about women's rights. This is about the rights of all of us. And we continue to hear more and more unbelievable details from the January 6th commission hearings that should make anyone, no matter what party or political affiliation you're a part of, if you are paying attention and listening to the facts, you have to understand just how precarious democracy is in the United States right now. With all of this going on, it's easy to understand why so many of us feel despondent and defeated and that no matter what they would do, what actions they take would seem to make a difference. But no matter how despondent or defeated you feel, we can't give up. And sometimes we need to meet someone or hear a story about someone who against all personal odds, as well as all this crazy stuff that I mentioned earlier that's happening all around us in the world, in our communities, in our country, continue to have hope and to believe that she as one person can still make a difference. And as Dr. King said, that it's never too late to do what's right and to stand up, speak out, and take action. My guest today on this podcast is such a person, a prime example of the resiliency of good that the human spirit is capable of. Her name is Lori Kelly. And you simply must stay with us to hear her incredible story of perseverance, strength, and humanity, and her dogged campaign to spread anti-racism and anti-hate. Lori Kelly joins me next. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC and join our movement. Okay, we're back now with our special guest, Lori Kelly. Lori, how are you? I'm great. I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing even better because I'm having a chance to have you on our podcast and in the last uh, segment, I talked a, a lot about you at the very end, uh, about how your story is so inspirational. Um, but uh, before we get into it, maybe you just start off by quickly introducing yourself. This is going to be fun. Um, my name is Lori Kelly, and I'm currently in Key West, Florida. 
I have been working for many years as a librarian, as a college teacher, and now I have my favorite job ever. I teach GED to students in the local jail, and I like it a lot. That's fantastic. I can tell just by the energy in your voice that uh, it's a passion that you have. So I mentioned in the prior segment um, all of the challenges that people are facing right now, just a, a crazy world, whether it's mass shootings, whether it's you know the Supreme Court making decisions that are not helping women's rights, that are not helping our environment, um, the war in Ukraine, with all that pressure and personal pressures people face, mm. they need sometimes someone they can look at that's an example of we can't give up. No matter what, we have to continue to do something to make a positive difference. And I mentioned you and your story. I didn't go into details because I said you would provide those details. So maybe we start off by you just going back to the beginning and telling us about yourself. Cool. Okay. So um, I was born in California, Southern California in San Diego about uh, now. It is 63 years ago. And... Um, I was raised like a lot of other people. Um, I don't think if you passed me on the street, you would have thought I was anything other than a generic white kid. Um, However, my parents um, got born again when I was probably in kindergarten. And so I was raised in their church which again, looked like a normal Baptist church. Um, However, um, it was also a very fundamentalist evangelical church. And at the time, I didn't know any different. It was just my life. I, to be honest, did not meet another person outside of my church and that religious setting until I was out of college. So I guess the best way, the best story to kind of encapsulate where we were coming from is that um, when I remember when Dr. King was assassinated, I remember sitting in the pew and I remember the pastor leading us in a prayer of thanksgiving because the Lord had moved aside this barrier to his will. And I didn't even know who Dr. King was at the time. Um, Within my culture, that was just, we did not know anybody outside of that culture. And so that was just the norm that we knew the right thing because we knew the Bible in a certain way and we were surrounded constantly by enemies and anybody different was the world. So there, it was a foundational sense of paranoia that we grew up with. And I think what's been interesting to me over the years is to realize that when I tell that story to people, they they often ask questions like, where did you grow up? As if I grew up on some, you know, way deep south KKK farm. Right. <laughs> but right. I, I think that we are beginning to see now that the kind of, um, that kind of paranoia based religious fervor yeah. It's incredibly common and has become very powerful in our community right now. So many people are just now being introduced to this part of our culture. So that's interesting to me. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And um, like you said, it's it's such a, a dangerous part of our culture because people hear religion, they hear Christian, they hear church, and they think it must be good. But just hearing you speak, it sounds like maybe in retrospect, you remember that maybe some of the teachings were racist. Some of the teachings were misogynist or anti-women or anti-other, anyone, not us. Um, can you tell, tell us more a little bit about some of that and what you experienced? 
I think that's a that's a good point because it the the paranoia and the separateness is not directed at just African American people or just racism. Um, there was a, an assumption that um, men were the head of the household, and that as women we needed to be under the umbrella of protection at all times, which meant that um, as as a young woman I had no autonomy or no ability to speak. Um, women did not speak in the church setting. And that carried over into the family setting also. So we were taught that our purpose was to find a spiritual leader who would be a male, who would then um, marry us and direct us for the rest of our lives. And um, so I, I learned from an early age that it wasn't safe to push back against that because women would go to the pastor or go to the pastor's wife for counseling because they were being abused and then be sent back and hurt badly, badly because, and it was their fault because they had not been submissive. Wow. So, oh my gosh. And this is the environment you grew up in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, it was normal. Um, I did it. That also just teaches you early on that being a woman is something dangerous and something that God does not like. That you are constantly a temptation. And so, I was um, enough of a reader Mm -hmm. and curious enough that I wanted to know why God did not like me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that was what I did when I went to Bible school. I went to the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, um, which was, and still is, it's a university now in Los Los Angeles. And they do regular four-year degrees they do graduate degrees now but i did my senior thesis on the feminine attributes of the godhead because i wanted to understand what god really thought about women because it was a survival thing for me how how can i make sense of everything that i know and everything that i believe is true tells me that I am a horrible person for no good reason. And that I also need to be afraid of everybody who is not within my small group. And so I just learned by reading and learning on my own that there were that um, there were different ways to interpret the world. There were different ways to interpret scripture. There were different ways to do Christianity. And um, so I, I started to make connections with, first of all, with people who identified as Christian, okay. but were doing um, social action. So people like the Catholic workers or there was an evangelicals for social action group that I joined just to learn more. And then, but then as I learned and as I changed, um, there comes a time when you lose um, connection with your former life. Yes. Because there's just sometimes a bridge too far. And so I found myself um, graduating college. Um, I had moved to New York and I was working in a group home for people with mental retardation. It was run by um, a Jewish ultra-Orthodox group. Wow. And um, I'd never lived anywhere outside of my little Christian bubble. 
And here I was in New York (laughs) (laughs) and um, not, you know, I no longer had contact with the church community. My family was not there to be supportive in that way um, because they had their own things going on. And what I found was that um, it it was African-American people who were my coworkers who kind of helped me understand how the real world worked, Mm. um, how to get like, um, you know, how to, how to take the subway, how to, you know, just basic things. Um, that you just had never been exposed to because you were in this bubble for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, just through a lot of just generosity of spirit, people were kind to me. And, and because that, you know, this is how I was introduced to the real world. And it was impossible not to see racism. Yeah. And it's because funny because, go ahead. It, it just, it affected me. Yes. Yeah, um, what I was going to say is it, it's I'm just curious as to your thoughts at the time, because you grew up in what you describe almost as like a racist cult, kind of a church misogynist. And I'm guessing you've been in this bubble and not exposed to people of color or a lot of different people, whether it's people Jewish or, or black. So now you're in this in New York and you're working with these folks and they're kind of helping you. Were you afraid at first or like what was your initial reactions? Um, I was just incredibly naive, just incredibly naive. I just assumed that I think we were raised to be afraid of everybody. Um, The flip side of that is you also develop the sense that you're a total nerd, Mm. like you have zero social skills and the rest of the world probably hates you because you're an idiot. (laughs) So there's a real social awkwardness that was really at that age, that was probably more primary that I, everybody else understood like jokes and movies and all that stuff. And I didn't. So there was a lot I needed to learn. I was also, to be honest, just, incredibly stupidly dangerously naive okay like walking around in uh, not being able to judge safety on the street um i remember walking a past a person who'd been shot at the um, local all-night bar and just not knowing how to where I should be at the time and how to move myself out of that. And where uh, I remember cops stopping me often to question me, why are you in this neighborhood? Really? And it was my neighborhood. (laughs) Why is is this white lady in this neighborhood? Not to arrest you, but to get you out of there. (laughs) but that also taught me that a lot of what um, a a lot of the dialogue that we hear among white people about danger is um, just theater. Yes. And it's a question that it's something that I end up talking about a lot with the kids at jail Yes. because they have a very, um, romanticized idea about um, being gangsters. Yes. <laughs> and so if, if I say like, oh yeah, you know, I came of age in Oakland and New York and Brooklyn, and then they want to know like, was it like what we see on TV? And no, it's not. It's people <laughs> in neighborhoods. Yes. And yes. it's families and it's just people trying to get by. That's right. But, yeah, this narrative, this theater, you know, of, of 
you know, Chicago is a, is a dangerous place and, and all these mm-hmm. neighborhoods, Oakland is dangerous. When the reality, and I spoke on this in the first segment, is America is a dangerous place. Um, sure. Churches are dangerous now. Schools, little yeah. kids can't go to school yeah. without yeah. fear that they could be shot. Um, yeah. I remember going to the 4th of July parade as a kid, excited to see the, the parade and Kids can't even go to parades. No one. So there's nowhere in this country that's safe. Yet right. there's this theater that's well. It's it's the neighborhoods of color that are dangerous. No, right. No. So yeah. I, it's really- and that it's you know the the flip side of that theater is that we need to be to build ourselves some kind of barrier so that we can remain safe. Yes. And I think that we don't realize that we make each other safe. That's right. Communities, neighborhoods make each other safe. There's a book called Dying of Whiteness that I think is really interesting in this part of the conversation because it's it's from a public health doctor. And he just looks at statistics about um, health and viability and why that's just dipped so precariously, especially among white people. And there are just decisions and lifestyles and untreated racism Hmm. that is damaging and making white people die at a faster rate. Wow. Than they ever have. I've never Suicide heard. rates are going through the roof. Um, and I th- that's a part of safety that we don't think about. We prefer to think that safety, danger is those people who don't look like me. Danger is we as white people not healing the damage that racism has done to ourselves. That's where we're killing ourselves. That's when Dr. King talked about that very thing. Uh, yeah. You know, he talked about that racism is bad for the racist. Uh, Absolutely. Exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah. I'm curious, as you were, as you started your career and you're working around all these black people and they're taking you under their wing and they're treating you like family, it sounds like, and teaching you about life. What was your family's reaction or your church's reaction to this? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, um, I okay, I can tell you a story. <laughs> I I got really sick on the on the F train one day, and my friend Cornell took me all the way out to where my my parents were living in New Jersey at the time. Okay, and. You had to take a train and then get on this bus and it took forever. And he took me all the way out there. So we did not get, we didn't get there till like five or six at night. And um, he dropped me off and made sure I was safe. And my mother would not let him stay overnight at the house. Oh man. Because she told me that she was that the neighbors had seen him come in to the, the house. neighbors had seen him come in. Wow. And whether a neighbor had or not, I doubt it. But in her head, wow. she was so much more concerned about what some fictional neighbor might think that she sent this person all the way back Who took- to the Went out of his way to make sure her daughter. It was got home it was safely. like a three hour commute to get out to where they lived, yeah. and um, so yeah, they were not good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not good. <laughs> but I didn't know at the time how to speak to that yeah. with them. Yes, it took a while. It took a while. So you so as and, a, so you didn't you didn't confront them aggressively about this at the time. You had to kind of grow into it. Yeah, I mean, I I pushed back, but in that setting, I didn't have the 
power to do much of anything, you know, I, but, and plus at that time I was really sick. So I had, I had mono and I was like racked up for months, but, um, it it took a while for me to get the vocabulary Mm -hmm. and for them to realize that this was not an aberration. This was who I was Mm. and that if they wanted to see me, then they needed to be okay with my people. And so my, my mother never got to that place. My father did, um, to, to a certain extent. Okay. All right. So after New York, then, then, then what, what was the next part of your life journey? Um, So then I moved from New York to the Bay area, to Oakland. And then I lived in Oakland and Berkeley for about 20 years and did, um, and that was an interesting time because it was eighties and nineties. So the culture that I moved into was very Afrocentric. It was a switch. I I don't, I think that was probably before your time, but (laughs) (laughs) there was in the Bay area, especially what there was, we were kind of transitioning from, like the Panthers kind of civil rights culture. And that was something that I was fairly familiar with. And so I grew up around places like Marcus Books and um, community centers where- Marcus Books. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Because my son uh, graduated with his master's degree at Berkeley in June, and we went for graduation. And one of the places he took us was Marcus Books. I didn't realize how how big and, I guess, significant that store was. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. I remember I was super broke at the time. And I remember they let me sit in the front there and wow. read all of Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic. Because <laughs> I couldn't afford to buy it. <laughs> They were such good people. I'm glad it's still there. It's still there. It's going strong. Fantastic. So, and then what was interesting was as as the activist culture shifted to a more Afrocentric kind of culture, and then I had to reassess what my position was as a white person. Okay. Um, because spaces started to be there, started to be a little bit more. Um, exclusionary. And I think for good reason at the time, people needed to a safe place to talk through their own stuff. Yeah. Right. So there were times when I needed to back off. I, I learned a lot about um, forming friendships and doing work that was based on the project that needed to happen. Yes and figuring out what I could contribute to the project that needed to happen and focusing on that rather than, um, um, am I, am I being, am I appearing to be an anti-racist white person? And can I, you know, I saw a lot of my white peers kind of get distracted or leave because they didn't feel like they were, there was space for them. They, they felt awkward. They didn't, they wanted to figure out a way to feel like everybody knows I'm not racist. And they never got that continual validation. And so they left Mm -hmm. and, and um, it was, that was some good growing. Yes. You know, that, that's an important aspect of, of being an anti-racist uh, or someone who's anti-hate, um, you know, for me to understand I am supportive of women's rights. I will fight for women's rights, but I'm not a woman. And there mm. are times where I just may not fit in. That doesn't mean that they don't think I support. It just means I don't fit in. They need space. And I think this is really important sometimes for white people to understand because there are some white people who maybe get their feelings hurt because not all black people are in the same place. Some people have had a lot more trauma than others and they need space. 
So this, mm-hmm. this point that you're making around, you know, the growth of all of us when we're in this space of anti-racism, anti-hate, you know, doing everything we can to make things better, we can't get our feelings hurt uh, so mm-hmm. easily. Yeah, or we can get our feelings hurt and then we do the work that we need to heal those feelings. Much better. We don't turn to the person who is oppressed and say, let me talk this through with you so that I can feel better. Right. <laughs> That's right. Right? Perfectly because, good. And, and I think it's just a relief. It's just a relief to be able to say, hey, yeah, sometimes I'm racist. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I'm on a journey. And why the hell would I not be? I was raised in this culture. Mm-hmm. And we all have work to do. And it's not my, it's not 100% my fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the structure we all share. That's right. And if we commit to breaking down that structure, then we can talk strategically about where am I best used in that work. And if people see the work and I keep my mouth shut, then they are willing to partner with me. That's right. And so that's, it just takes time. None of us are perfect. And all of us have bad thoughts at one point or another, thoughts that we're not proud of. But what makes us good people is our actions, the ability to logically say, that's not the right thing. I'm doing this. It's Mm -hmm. our choices that make the difference. Yep. Yep. And even if I, you know, even if I catch myself, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. That's the world we live in. And I'm doing whatever I can to make sure that, you know, younger generations don't have to live in that. You know, we can see progress. Mm -hmm. We can see that. All right. Thank you, Lori. This will be the first half of our fantastic interview. You're going to take a quick break. We're coming right back with the rest of Lori's incredible story. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. All right, welcome back to the Ark of Change with Donzo Leggett. We're here with our special guest, Lori Kelly, and Lori's going to continue her story. When we left, she was uh, finishing uh, her time in Oakland. Lori? Hey. So, all right. So I finished up my master's at UC Berkeley and um, worked for the library system there in Oakland and it was great work. I loved that work immensely. But um, I got recruited for a position in Fort Myers, Florida. Mm. They had a small African-American library. And that was the work that I had been doing. And um, so they flew me and my partner all the way out to Fort Myers for the interview. And I, I don't know if you guys know library context, but libraries are broke. They never pay for anything. And they flew me cross country just for an interview. Two people. Wow. Almost as far as you can go in the U.S. from, from Oakland, California to, to it, Southwest it Florida. Crazy. Wow. It was crazy. So uh, I knew something was up. But I. <laughs> I we drove around and t- found the library. It was this little tiny building. It used to be the um, it used to be the restroom for the tennis courts in the black neighborhood. So visited the library, said hi to everybody before the interview. Then I the next day was the interview, and I went downtown to the big library. It was just on the other side of the railroad tracks, like they say, and on the other side of the um, tracks. And uh, um, they have this huge, beautiful new library with like acres and acres of books and all sorts of stuff. And 
do the interview and then they're going to take me on a tour just to show me some of the library branches and the director of the library system did not know how to get to the black library wow so i had to give her directions and we we um you know she did the the, the direct is this this walk. is this is the late 80s or early 90s this was, is the 90s. This is the yeah. 90s, and basically, we're still seeing the, the remnants 90s. of segregation and redlining. Yeah. In the so, South. and that was exactly the reason I got the job is because they've been sued for oh, okay. for discrimination because they had a black library that was the restroom oh of gosh. the tennis court, and then on the other side, they had this fancy white library. And nobody in their library system wanted to work in the black library. So ah, that's why they flew they, you all the way from California. They had to hire somebody <laughs> from way far away. <laughs> wow. So I was thrilled because this is like, that's my dream job, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm coming to, I'm coming to Fort Myers um, from Oakland, which is, you know, so I'm, I'm used to being in a setting where we're multicultural, we share a certain sense of progressive values. Um, when you, but it was different there. Mm -hmm. um, I had never lived in the South before. And my partner who was from Southeast DC, he was more comfortable with it because um, he used to say that um, he was more comfortable around Southern white people because they show you who they are. And I'm, I'm imagining from the way you're talking, he must have been black or an African-American. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's definitely black, okay. um, but not a very intimidating person, a very like a small, light skinned black man, incredibly intelligent, really funny. Um, but in in California, people would you know you would see white women do the perch clutching clutching thing when he walked by but they would calm down when they saw me that i was with him and he was a safe person mm. and then they just be embarrassed because they forgot that they were liberal <laughs> for a minute <laughs> and in the south it was very different um they were the sheriff told my partner that uh, he pulled him over and said that they had his license plate and that they were watching him and that he shouldn't ever touch white women. And they, he, they um, knew that he was your partner. They knew. Yeah, they knew. Wow. It was a small town. They knew. Um, and it was the type of setting where, um, like I would, I did a, I remember doing a children's story hour with some of the kids and reading this book called Teammates. And it was a really beautiful story about a white baseball player who befriended Jackie Robinson and Pee puts his Reese. arm up. Pee Wee Reese. Yes, that's it. Pee Wee. Yes. And so then I asked the kids, well, what would you do if somebody called you a name like that? Because in Oakland, it, 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 you know, that was, we're all nice to each other, right? <laughs> and the kids, they looked at me like, Miss Kelly. <laughs> they said, well, when the, when the boys come by with the guns, my grandpa and my dad and my uncle, we have this, this barrier that comes out front of the house and he's got a rifle and he's got a rifle. And that's how that's how we handle that. And this was I, this was elementary school, like eight kids. Yeah, yeah, that's elementary school. This kids. is in Fort Myers, elementary. and this was they they, they yeah. literally said when when the boys come by with guns by our house, we all mm -hmm. know we have to get behind the partition. My grandpa, my dad, get the rifles. That's how we handle it. There, there's yeah. no no one's putting their arm around me. There's no Peary Reese. No, uh, uh, there wasn't. So, and this was out, this was out east away from Dunbar. Um, but there's old um, 
turpentine towns out there that are left over from when um, enslaved people were used to harvest yeah. pine for turpentine. So, and they're surrounded by people that will kill them. Yeah. So I, when I was there, um, after we, we built a new library for Dunbar and it's a beautiful building. It's just lovely. And it has the biggest collection of African-American resources on the whole West coast of Florida. Wow. It's a great library, but then, I recruited an African-American librarian to take my place and I took a job at the school, at a school library out east. And the first year I was there, um, a gang of kids in middle school shot the music teacher of the high school dead. Oh my gosh. Because, um, he'd caught them on campus doing some kid thing and um they'd heard he was gay so they killed him so the sheriff came out and did a training for us all on how to recognize gangs Mm -hmm. and described stereotypical black and latino youth i don't watch out for kids wearing their pants too low and kids that have their shirts buttoned up to their, and the gang who had killed the teacher were all white kids. Really? Yeah. They were all white kids from the middle school next to where I was teaching. And so yet the training to recognize the gangs training was, was about how racially scary stereotypical about color. black and latino yeah. black and brown gang members when the shooters yeah. and gang was a white gang so even in that direct factual evidence still racism took over the mindset that's unbelievable yeah because there's just oh there are just some things we do not want to see you know I think white people do not want to see how we're killing each other. And so we push that off onto others. And so we did, we started a group, a scholars club for students of color to just like take them to colleges, work on homework together, do that kind of thing. and did um you know we did some decent good community work but it was hard Mm. it was hard it was hard um and i think i just i don't know I, i i'm thinking in terms of you know i you guys you talk often about having those difficult conversations with other white people. Yes. Right. Yes. And I am just now thinking that there comes a point, at least there came a point in my life where, um, I, I didn't have those conversations any longer because white people wouldn't talk to me. (laughs) just because of where, who I was. And, um, and that's okay. That's okay. Still, we could still work on things together and they still, I, I can tell you a story about the woman who was my coworker in the small library out East, the place where we, where we had the gang, right? She's an incredibly conservative person and very uncomfortable around me and my partner at first. And then went through the phase of, oh, I like him, he's an exception. And she liked me, but then her son got AIDS and he was in the closet, she couldn't tell anybody. 
And I was the only person who she could talk to that would tell her about, you know, this is the medicine that he can take. These are the support groups he can go to. These are the, so when it came to something that needed to be done that we could work on together, then, then we were able to do that. Yes. And we were, because we formed that kind of a relationship, she was, I think she learned to extend some of that empathy a little bit more broadly than she had before to the point where um, her family started to notice and complain. <laughs> really? Yeah. About her friendship yeah. with you. And about her change. In her yeah, outlook. things were small. Things were changing. You know. Um, so I, I guess that's it. It's not so much a conversation as it is walking a path together. Walking a path together. What we talk about is, look, there's some people in our lives or that we come in contact with that they probably their mindset is is they're not going to change. And, and so you have to you have to decide where you're going to put your personal energy. And so we say start with those who are influenceable, those who are, you know, who, you know, you mentioned there's some there were some folks in Oakland who saw themselves as anti-racist, but their feelings were not quite. They didn't feel they, they were hurt when they weren't always invited. And so they left. So those are the ones we target. You know, am I going to go try to talk to, you know, someone that, um, you know, is, is riding around with a, a, a flag that says all immigrants get out or something? Like that? I'm probably not going to go try to influence that person. But uh, am I going to influence someone or work with someone in my network who, you know, I, is, is not standing up? They're kind of just trying to be silent. That's the people we're trying to get at. Those who are who just feel like maybe if I just don't say anything, maybe I just pretend it doesn't exist. You know, maybe if I just say, hey, look, I'm not a racist, so shouldn't that be enough? Those are the people that we're trying to influence. Um, mm -hmm. And then as you build your confidence, then you can talk to some of those other folks who are a little bit further down the path, which I've done, and, and been able to converse some of those people. But you have to have built up the confidence and the personal wherewithal and be willing to give up some of your peace to do that. And, and not everyone is in a position to do to do that. And so what we try yeah. to do is just help everyone find where you can play. If to your point, it could be a conversation. It could just be you walking a path that others see. And they say, that looks like a different way to do it. It's kind of like what you were talking about earlier about church. So, yeah. you, so yeah. you eventually moved to Key West. What's different yeah. about Key West that uh, seems to bring you peace? Ah, uh, well... Oh, there are many things that are different about it. Um, Key West, at least, you know, you were raised in Key West. And back in the day, yep, yep. Um, Key West was an Afro-Bahamian city yes. in many ways. And it still has vestiges of that. And it has been a very accepting place to a wide range of people. And I like that about Key West. I like that a lot. Um, it's changing because it's gentrifying. Yes. And so, and that's another, you know, that's just another area of doing the work is trying to maintain livability for the people who are still here, who are not rich. Yes. And it's getting to be a lot more difficult. But I know do you that. are doing a lot in this area to try yeah. out for people who don't know a lot about Key West. I mean, it, it, it's just like Lori said, um, it's a small island at the, at the tip of, of the Florida Keys of, uh, in Florida, just about 90 miles north of Cuba. And it was an affordable place for a, a long time. Um, my family immigrated in the late eight, mid to late 1800s, and there were a lot of Afro-Bahamians there as well as people from Cuba, Cuban descent, most recently a lot of folks from Haiti. Um, now there's a lot of folks from Eastern Europe. So it's always been a place people could come and, and work and live together. I think the motto is one human family. But over the last mm -hmm. 20 years, it's gotten so expensive 
to live there, that many of the black families are gone. Well, a lot mm. of the native families, black or white or, or Cuban, mm. are just not there. They just can't afford it. Uh, it yeah. So, but but there's still work to be done. There's still you still need teachers. You still need physician assistants. You still need librarians. You still need bus drivers. You still need uh, folks who work in the service industry. So I know Laura, you're doing a lot to try to help people be able to still live here. How? What are you doing? Well, I think it's. I don't think of it in terms of helping. I think of it in terms of trying to build my community. It's a survival tactic for me. Yes. It's purely selfish <laughs> that, <laughs> that I I want to build the community that I want to live in. Yes. And that means that um especially someplace like this that is so vulnerable to climate change and sea level rise. Yes so vulnerable to gentrification, so many ways that we are um, not sustainable practically, (laughs) (laughs) but um, we've got to survive and helping each other survive is what builds community. And that's what helps us, I think, to reach across some of those barriers. So I try to just be as practical as possible Um, I volunteer at this farm out on Stock Island, about a mile away from here, and just do the garden. We we have a community garden and we use it as a model to grow things that people can eat and grow in their backyards and that grow easily in this incredibly humid, hot, tropical climate. So it's a big learning curve to figure out how to feed yourself from the ground here. Um, Because we can't grow vegetables that you see at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. We have to learn to grow um, vegetables from Asia, Africa, um, Hawaii, tropical places. And so that's just a really good conversation to be in with my people in the in the neighborhood and it's um something that we can that we have in common and for a lot of the kids that i work with it's surprisingly the the first time that they have been um out to the beach you know A, a lot of the kids that we work with in the school district are um, their parents are working two or three jobs. Right. They're living in public housing. They've got responsibilities when they come home yes. because there's no childcare other than them. So they don't get out often. And we live someplace where people pay five, $600 a night to come stay here and go to our beaches. <laughs> and they've never been because there's just not time. And because our city is set up, not for us, but for tourists. Yes. So for many of us, we're, we don't feel welcome in those other places. So to have a space that is welcoming to those kids has been really life saving for some of these kids over COVID, no lie, there have been, I have had calls from students who were suicidal and I don't have an answer for them, but I can take them somewhere where we can sit and pet a goat and look at the water and help me do this chore and we'll work on this together. And it, it helps. It helps. So um, that's just, you know, it's just a way I find that working on things together builds a community for me in a way that sometimes a conversation can't. Yes. And 
because I'm no longer with my partner and I'm just a single old white lady. <laughs> and so my relationship with the black community is very different now. Okay. And so I'll find myself, you know how you do that head nod when you see anybody on the street, yes, right? Yes. Like, so I, I do that and, and I realize, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's not me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't feel bad because I do that when I go back and they don't know who the heck I am either anymore. Uh, uh, every, every, no one down there is a, a native anymore. So even if, uh, if, if you see a, a black person, they see me, they don't know me. So, uh, uh, but so i'm just learning a new place in yeah. the community yeah. and and trying to figure it out as i go along yes well i really like what you said because I, I do think it's true that you know it, it's great if we could feel we do good things for other people but the reality is we do good things because it makes us feel better to do good things absolutely and that's okay that's part of this you talked about earlier, how you know maybe some white people maybe are having health issues sometimes because of this pent-up anxiety. I, I haven't read that book, but I do know that when you do good things, you feel better about yourself. And when you feel better about yourself, you feel healthier. You feel like you can accomplish more. And so simply by adopting anti-racism, adopting anti-hate, you bring peace to yourself internally and allow yourself to flourish. So mm -hmm. I think that is, you know, just wonderful that you're doing all these things, like you said, for selfish reasons, to make yourself feel good. It's mm -hmm. making everyone else around you feel good as well. Right. And yeah. Laurie, if there was, I was gonna say, if there's, if there's one thing you wanna leave our audience with um, out of your talk, which was just tremendous, by the way, tremendous in terms of what you've overcome, the challenges that you've had to deal with um, to help all of us realize we can't ever give up. But is there a, a singular message that you'd like to share with us, with the, with mm -hmm. the, or leave the audience with? You know, I think what you said, we can't ever give up. Whew, that is so hard right now because we are taking a beating and I don't see any clear fix. So realistically, we are, we're in a time where our empire is crumbling. Yes. Um, I don't see any clear response to the fact that my island's going to be underwater in 30 years. Those, that's the reality we live in. So how do you keep going? How do you have hope in that setting? And I think the key is the shift from two things, a shift from charity to doing the work that we need to do to keep ourselves safe. Yes. And that's something that brings joy. And it we're going to have to do it because we have to keep ourselves safe. And that means we need to form community. We need to work together because and that's where the joy is. And then Mariam Kaba always says, hope is a discipline. It's a practice. It is not an emotion. It is like, yeah, the day Roe was overturned, I got a bunch of texts from women because it's terrifying. Yes. And so you take some time to say, yeah, let's deal with those feelings, but then let's do some work. What's the work we're gonna do? If you're gonna text me, we're gonna do some work. Yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, we <laughs> get right. people together, we've got a list of local resources, we're hammering it out, we met at the farm and had a bonfire and talked strategy. So we've got, you know, we've got another community to work with and that brings joy. Should always bring you pleasure. Thank you so much, Lori, for sharing okay. your truly Thank incredible you. story. Um, and for those of you who have talked to Lori multiple times, but every time I talk to her, I not only leave learning something new, but inspired to do the work 
And that's what ARC is all about. Our vision is create and build a racism-free world. And we're going to do that by helping people build the confidence and character to spread anti-racism. And, uh, and hopefully Lori help bring some of that confidence to everyone listening. Thank you again, Lori. We hope hey. to have you back again soon. Hey, it's so much fun. Thanks. It was a real joy. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about ARC, donate to our cause, and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.